Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by... Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com, featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith, not just a profile picture. For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com, and the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember, CatholicSingles.com, for faith, fellowship, and love. CMF Curo is the country's first Catholic healthcare ministry to provide an affordable health sharing solution rooted in Catholic teaching and community. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.com. That's mycatholichealthcare.com. CMF Curo, healthcare fully alive. What are you doing this Lent? The St. Paul Center is streaming their newest video Bible study for free starting Ash Wednesday. Based on Scott Hahn's renowned covenantal theology, this is a study no one should miss. Invite your friends, Catholic or not. Don't miss your chance to see this premium study for free. Go to stpaulcenter.com to sign up today. of Hilaire Belongs, Characters of the Reformation. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. So far, we've been considering the English Reformation, but now the story turns a corner, both chronologically and geographically. We turn the corner chronologically because we now come into the 17th century, and we also turn a corner geographically because we begin to look at the effects of the Reformation in France. Many of you listeners will have already been familiar with the story of the Tudors and the great drama of the English Reformation, but perhaps like me, not so familiar with the events that were going on across the Channel in France. The story is really pretty complicated, uh, and I will take you through step by step in this chapter in which Belloc focuses on King Henry IV of France. You might want to listen to this episode again because the story is so complicated and perhaps unfamiliar to you. I would also remind you that this is an abridged version of Belloc's book. I'm omitting some of the chapters and I'm also cutting the chapters down so that they make a podcast which is easier to listen to. I encourage you, if you're interested in this most fascinating aspect of the history of the church, to do some more research on your own and get some of the books and biographies to dig more deeply into the characters of the Reformation. Henry IV of France. With the opening of the 17th century, the Reformation enters its second phase. In England, the faith had been worsted by the consistent pressure against it of government, and with the loss of England, the chance of a complete victory for Catholicism was lost. And it was lost by 1606. Henceforward, we have in all Europe a second phase more political and less religious than the first, a division of Europe into two parts, Catholic and Protestant, which gradually crystallized and became permanent. France fell, after its exhausting civil war, onto the Catholic side, but not thoroughly. Henry IV of France was the typical figure of the Compromise. He is symbolic of the way in which the great religious struggle of the 17th century in Europe was going to end. 
It had long looked as though it would end either by the complete dislocation of Catholicism and its replacement by a mass of Protestant sects. The Catholic reaction would set in and would save the situation completely. But in point of fact, neither of these solutions took place. The great struggle ended without a decision. Towards the middle of the 17th century, around 1650, the two cultures now firmly established each in its own region and were left facing the other. The first symptom of what was going to happen took place in France at the beginning of this last phase, that is, a little before the year 1600, after the religious wars that had gone before. The struggle between the old religion and its enemies had been going on for a whole lifetime, and fierce fighting, civil wars, popular revolts, etc., connected with the quarrel had extended for fifty years. The active government of the French people had lain for many centuries in the house of a royal family called the Capetian House, from their founder, Hugh Capet, who was the first king of that dynasty. The French monarchy had a strict rule of succession, whereby the next male heir must take the throne upon the death of the last king. The French crown could not be inherited by a woman or even through a woman. For some hundreds of years, it had gone from father to son without a break, and then the last king had no surviving son, only a daughter, and the same was true of his brother who succeeded, so that the next male heir was only a cousin. Though this cousin was of the Capetian house, he had a special title of his own, Valois, and the kings descended from this cousin were called the House of Valois. Now, just when the Reformation quarrel was at its height, just at the moment when Queen Mary was trying to restore Catholicism for good in England, and the Emperor in Germany was doing all he could to keep the peace between two sides, it became clear that the Valois line was going to fail also. There was a succession of three sickly young men, none of whom had heirs, or probably could have had heirs. The nearest male heir was a distant cousin— this distant cousin belonged to a junior branch of the Capetian house, which had the title of Bourbon. Anthony de Bourbon, the head of the family at the time when these sickly Valois boys were successively occupying the French throne, happened also to be the king of a little Basque district on the extreme boundaries of France, just beyond the southern frontier, called Navarre. Being the next heir, he declared in favor of the Protestant cause, and his young son, Henry, who was a fine soldierly young man, was brought up to be a Protestant. Something like half the nobility of France had also joined the religious revolt, hoping, like their fellows and contemporaries, the English lords, to make a good thing out of it by looting the church land, as had been done in England, Scotland, northern Germany, and Switzerland. They, therefore, began attacks upon the regular government of the Valois kings, who stood for the old orthodoxy, for Catholicism. These attacks, from skirmishes and plots against individual lives, developed into regular civil war, called in the history of France the Wars of Religion. The French Protestant rebels were called Huguenots, and this heir presumptive to the throne, Anthony de Bourbon, King of Navarre, was the head of that faction. The most powerful man, however, amongst the Huguenots, was one of the three wealthy Coligny brothers, known as the Admiral, because he was Admiral of France, that is, supervising naval business, and drawing his revenue from wreckage and prize money, 
while his opponent, the most powerful man on the Catholic side, was the Duc de Guise, the House of Lorraine. The Coligny faction had murdered a Guise, and the Guise, therefore, watched to destroy the power of Coligny and his Huguenot followers. The crown, which was really run not by the succession of sickly boys, but by their mother, Catherine de' Medici, a woman of great energy and intelligence, was determined to be subject neither to the one faction nor the other. And the most dangerous one at the moment was that of the Huguenots under Coligny. If they were sufficiently successful in their rebellious war, they might come to command the whole country, change its religion, and, of course, loot all the church wealth and become, as the English lords had become in their turn, more powerful than the crown itself. It happened that a great number of Huguenots had come up to Paris to assist at the wedding of young Henry Bourbon, son of the King of Navarre, to the sister of the reigning king, who was Catherine de Medici's daughter. Coligny, plotting actively, was in Paris also threatening the crown. The Queen Mother, Catherine de' Medici, determined therefore to have Coligny assassinated. The populace of Paris, already intensely exasperated against the Huguenots, seized the opportunity, and this first attack on Coligny was the signal for a general uprising of the whole people of Paris on a scale which nobody had expected. The people chased the Huguenot gentlemen out of their homes and murdered them in the street, where there was a massacre of them and their servants. It is not known how many were killed altogether, but the probable number of victims in Paris was 2,000, and there were rising in many other towns as well. This violent outburst of popular feeling against the gentry, who were fomenting civil war as Protestants, is known as the Massacre of St. Bartholomew, because it began on the vigil of St. Bartholomew's Day, August 22nd, and continued on the day itself, August 23rd, 1572. The young Henry of Bourbon saved his life with difficulty. The massacre had a double effect. It exasperated the religious wars, of course, adding a powerful motive of vengeance to the original motive of religious difference but it also had the effect of frightening the Huguenot faction, who had not guessed how violent the popular anger against them really was. It showed that the temper of Paris, which counted for so much in those days in French affairs, was now definitely turned against the Protestants, and that the capital would have none of it, regarding those who supported it as traitors, rebels, and public thieves. So the religious wars went on with great violence. Old Anthony de Bourbon, the king of Navarre, died, and his son Henry succeeded him, but continued to lead the Huguenot forces in the civil war. Then the last of the Valois brothers was now king under the title of Henry III. His health was bad, he could certainly have no children, and so he recognized Henry of Bourbon, the new king of Navarre, who was his cousin, as his heir." But Paris was so angry with the Protestant faction that it refused to accept Henry of Navarre as its future king. The principle of strict hereditary monarchy in the male line was so strong in France at the time that this seemed to be a desperate move. The king, Henry III, left his capital and took refuge with his cousin Henry of Navarre, and together they besieged Paris from outside. A private man, who was particularly excited against the Huguenot faction, asked for an interview with the king, was granted it, and used the opportunity to stab Henry III to death. With the assassination of the last Valois, 
Henry of Navarre was legitimate king of France. He had the powerful Huguenot army at his service, and because he had hereditary right on his side, though still a Protestant, numbers of the Catholic gentry joined him as well. Up to this point, it had seemed probable that Henry of Navarre would make good his right to succession, and that France would have a Protestant king. If that should take place, all the Protestant leaders would have received a great accession of power, a general loot of church lands would certainly have begun, after the pattern of what had happened in England, and probably the faith would ultimately have been lost to France. Had France gone Protestant, the center of gravity in Europe from being with the Catholic culture would have passed to Protestantism forever. What saved the situation was the continued tenacity of the people of Paris. Although Henry of Navarre was still victorious, they were determined not to give way, and though they were subjected to a most horrible famine, they refused to yield. At last, it was Henry of Navarre himself who gave way. He may or may not have used the famous words, Paris is worth the mass, but these words certainly expressed his sentiments. He himself, like most of his rank in those days, had no real religion. The Huguenot preachers whom he had listened to bored him intensely. He was a very loose liver, much attached to his pleasures, the very opposite of a Puritan. He had the virtues of a soldier, but no real faith in any doctrine. He judged that it would be better, after all, to accept the religion of the bulk of his subjects, as unless he did so, he might never be allowed to reign in peace." The decision of Henry of Navarre to become Catholic was, as I have said, the first act of the great compromise by which Europe ultimately settled down into two opposing cultures, Catholic and Protestant. It marked the victory of popular Catholicism in France and the end of the chances, which once had stood very high, of Protestantism capturing that country. But the thing was not a Catholic victory by any means. It was what I have called it, a compromise. Henry's old comrades in arms... The Huguenots retained their violent opposition to Catholicism. The new king further favored them by issuing an edict known to history as the Edict of Nantes. Under this arrangement, a very large measure of toleration, and something of good deal more than toleration, was granted to the Huguenots. They were allowed to hold a certain number of strong towns and to garrison them and govern them independently, and thus form a sort of Protestant kingdom within the kingdom. So stood the compromise when Henry the Fourth, in his turn, was stabbed by another half-witted and fanatical defender of the Catholic cause, who, quite rightly, had doubted the king's sincerity. Henry the Fourth, the first Bourbon king, died thus in the year 1610. France was not, at his death, a fully Catholic country. On the contrary, it had become, through his action, a country in which a powerful anti-Catholic faction, counting many of the richest families in the kingdom, was tolerated and held important strongholds, as well as having the right to combine and put up effective resistance to the mass of the population of France. The ultimate result of thus establishing a dualism of religion was a current of French opinion which in the course of two more generations began to shift from Protestantism to a skeptical form of anti-Catholicism. But still, the Catholic culture of France had been saved by Henry of Bourbon's abjuration, and that king, known to history as Henry IV, had, though not intending to do so, saved the civilization of the country and of Europe, though only just. While this was going on in France, 
Henry's contemporary in England, James I, was giving an example of a different kind. He was establishing the Protestant doctrine of the divine right of kings, which has become, in course of time, the modern doctrine of the supremacy of the state over the church and of civil power over religious power. How James I represented this, we will explain in the next chapter. Thank you for listening to Characters of the Reformation by Hilaire Belloc. I invite you, as always, to go over to my blog, read my blog posts, listen to the other podcasts which are there, and be in touch. Thank you for listening. Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com. Woodhill Community Center. Have a hand in the heart of the city. Support their mission with your donations at WoodhillCommunityCenter.org. Toyota in Nicholasville Superstore. Online consultants are standing by right now to help you find your next Toyota. Visit ToyotaOnNicholasville.com. Lexus of Lexington, home of the best-selling Lexus IS. Find yours today at LexusOfLexington.com.